One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm Merrin with me today and we are very, very excited because we have a returning guest who we like very, very much, haven't we, Merrin? We have. We have the illustrious, the inimitable Dr. Simon Elliott with us, historian, archaeologist and honorary research fellow at the University of Kent. He's got an MA in war studies from, I think it's King's, isn't it, Simon? That's right, yep. And you've got an MA in archaeology from UCL, so he's definitely a man who digs historiography that is my one <laughs> right? oh my god that's such a dad joke i love it and also so, as well hector's here don't forget to introduce hector who's hi, on hector, the floor yeah. hector hector the, the golden doggle doodle dog doodle what is he he's a, doodle there I'll he is i'll tell you what he is he's totally he is. not interested is. in this podcast he's <laughs> at simon's feet like meh uh, Simon, you came on before to talk about your new book, which was we were trying to track the uh, what had happened to the lost Hispania Legion of Rome. Yep. Uh, but you mentioned afterwards that you can go way, way, way back, back further than this with the result that we've dragged you back on basically to talk <sighs> about the oldest warfare. Though, to be fair, it didn't require much dragging. You were like, yay, yay. Um, but we're going to talk about the oldest warfare we can get. And you've just told us we're going to spend 9,000 years of very old military history today, aren't we? We're going to go, actually it's 11, we're going to go to 9,000 BC. Whoa. Wow. That's a long way back. So hang on a second. We, we, we said warfare. Now, for me, when I hear the word warfare, I think, well, actually, I do. I'm really sad like this. I think the old English weir, which means large-scale military conflict, and the word fair, which is a journey, a road, or a passage or expedition. And I put them together, and I go, that's what warfare is. It's the military, and they're on the march, and things are going to happen. But I think you might have a different definition of warfare. Well, actually, Mary, firstly, you're right. I mean, that is exactly what warfare is. Um, the, 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 my research here began actually with a new book. Normally, I write about uh, the Roman world, and I'm actually writing about the ancient Greek world today. Um, uh, but with this particular book, what I thought I'd do is go uh, sort of off piste, as it were, and look at something very different. Because often, when I'm writing about certainly the ancient Greek world, I talk about the Medes and the, the, the Persians. And what I figured I'd do with this book, which is called Old Testament Warriors, out through Casemate uh, in on the 15th of May, so very um, very shortly as we record. Um, I thought what I'd do is I'd, I'd actually go to what I think is the beginning of warfare and join the dots. So go from 9000 BC through to the beginning of the classical world. And to start it, I decided what I should do is come up with my own definition of what warfare is. So I can say when warfare began, which I argue 
is around 8,500 BC. And actually, you referenced beautifully in your introduction to me where my starting point really was here, which was my MA in archaeology from UCL, because there one of my modules was looking at something called the Natufian Neolithic crossover in the Middle East. So when you stop, stop, you stop being sedentary hunter-gatherers, occasionally sort of uh, having flocks of uh, goats or sheep, and you start settling down as farmers. And around that time, you start seeing larger settlements occurring. And I, I, I thought to myself, well, can we look there about when warfare began? Um, so firstly, I came up with a definition, and my definition of when warfare begins is based on colorating two things. One, different kinds of society from very basic to very complex, and two, different kinds of fighting from very basic homicide through to the most complex modern warfare. Putting the two together, I came up with a definition of what warfare is for me, and for me it is uh, when you have a state involved in conflict. So a state, so uh, an organised group of people in uh, some kind of political entity, a state, which we can definitely prove um, were engaged in in conflict. And if I, I'll be brief here, because I know you've got many questions for me. <laughs> I looked throughout the entirety of history and prehistory about when I can find the first example of this happening. And, and you can look at things like... Um, uh, uh, examples of uh, battles or examples of raiding. For me, the most overt example was actually fortifications. Because to, to have significant fortifications of any kind, you need the whole state, a polity, to be involved. And actually, the first one I found was Jericho. So it's pre-pottery Neolithic A Jericho. So way before the, the biblical uh, sort of uh, Jericho, the Bronze Age Jericho, this is around 8,500 BC when Kathleen Kenyon, the amazing archaeologist associated with UCL where I did my MA, uh, did amazing excavations um, and to, to uncover what is effectively the world's first circuit of fortifications. So PPNA Jericho has a wall circuit, which is one kilometer in length, in diameter. And uh, this wall circuit is five meters high. It's two meters thick. Within it, it has an integral eight-metre-high tower. Remember, we're talking about 8,500 BC with a person designing this, man or woman, with a stick in the mud on the shore of the Dead Sea, designing a one-kilometre-long, five-metre-high, two-metre-thick wall circuit, which, uh, which has this eight-metre-high tower. And within the eight-metre-high tower, there's an integral staircase. So imagine the complexity of the engineering being designed by whoever designed it with a stick in the mud. Uh, so that is what I argue is the first example of warfare, the first proper town fortification. Because it, they had to have a purpose to build it. They didn't build it for fun, did they? That's they, had, they, 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 they had to perceive a threat, which, as you've described it, is another state that wants either presumably land or power or money or resources of some kind. Exactly, exactly right. So, so to, to build that circuit, and this is a population of no more than about 700 people, okay? So to build that circuit you would need the entirety of the population involved, which means it needs state-level intervention. So whoever, whatever form of rule they had, telling everybody, get cracking. Um, they bought in, they must have bought in because there was a perceived threat. In actual fact, Mary, my, my idea of the threat here 
is based on where Jericho is. Jericho is at the end of what we call a long-range trading network, all the way from the Zagros Mountains on the borders of modern Turkey and Iran, all the way down through to the shores of the Dead Sea. And what was going north from there were expensive minerals from the Dead Sea. But crucially, what was coming south from the Zagros Mountains was obsidian, which is the finest uh, stone to make tools from in the period. Right, and on the basis of that trade, Jericho, I think, became rich, far richer than any of the smaller settlements nearby, and attracted raiding because of that wealth, whether it's from another state, smaller, whether it's from nomadic raiders. But whatever, for whatever reason, they decided they had to fortify what they were doing there, and it worked because this fortified city, town, city, lasted another six or seven hundred years. So we've established when you think warfare begins but when do we when do you think we see so when do we see because Meryn and I don't have a clue uh, <laughs> when do you, do you think we see the earliest what you can actually categorize as a military force um what you can call an army in today's parlance and what military technology do they have Fabulous question. I, I would turn around and ask Hector, because Hector's heard me talk about this many times while I'm doing my research, but he's now snoring behind me, for which I apologise if you can hear it. Um, okay, so we're going to go from 8,500 BC, maybe 9,000 BC. We're going to jump through to the development of what we call modern civilizations in the Fertile Crescent. So um, this is the, the broadly the region in the Middle East going from the, the deltas of the Tigris and Euphrates on the Persian Gulf through to the Levantine coast of the Mediterranean down through to Egypt. Uh, and, and in this region, because you have the onset of agriculture on a mass scale, you start seeing the first evidence of what we would call armies. And these are in the context of city-states, which are largely in Mesopotamia. So this is Samaria and later Acadia uh, between about 3000 and 2000 BC. The city-states are involved in sort of a, a, a conflict with each other over control of resources, not just the agrarian resources they're able to grow through the building of very high-quality canals in this very lowland region, but also to control the import of expensive minerals, stone and wood, which aren't native to the region, which come from the Levantine coast and come from sort of modern Turkey and modern Iran. So you get these city-states developing, often within a, with a religious centre, uh, which are very structured, which are very organised, which start developing immense wealth through agriculture and controlling long-range trading routes, importing the materials I've mentioned, which allows them to afford people within society to do things other than just grow crops or import things. And one of the things they can do with this uh, surplus is to pay for a military with which they then fight each other to control these resources. And the militaries, intriguingly, uh, once they become organised, initially they're masked bodies of bowmen, but but later they become what we would certainly call in the context of um, classical Greece and the Hellenistic period, spearmen phalanxes. So you have these phalanxes of spearmen, often armed uh, based on the um, epigraphy and artwork that we see from the period, with very long spears held two-handed. Uh, their armour is fairly primitive, either a bronze or a copper or a leather cap. And often you see them depicted in these very long sort of full-length cloaks, sort of a bit like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. But these cloaks, very good. <laughs> I'm going to dodge the, uh, I'm going to dodge the, uh, the, 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 the bad guys. Um, the, the cloaks have got bronze 
circular plates on them. So they're covered in these bronze circular plates as well. Then even later, because you have this arms race developing between these city-states, so they have names like Ur and, and things like this, um, which are well known in the historical record, you end up with uh, the development of very long sort of full-length body shields as well, probably the size of a Roman scutum later, made of planks, etc. often only the front rank of these deep formations carrying them. And then later you start getting the onset of, uh, of equid um, technology, so primitive, primitive horses, ponies, um, uh, mules, etc., pulling very primitive sort of wheeled vehicles with warriors in the back. Okay, so I've got I've got um, a side question here before I talk about the outcomes of this this all this military um, potential coming together. Do we know this through cultural archaeology or physical archaeology? Do we know because we dug stuff up, Ooh, or do we know because in this area we're seeing papyrus and parchment and things being recorded? So really, again, fantastic question. Well, there are two things in play. Firstly, you 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 highlight something which is very important. So it's this period where we have the the beginning of writing. So initially in the form of accounting, of saying this person sold this many bushels of this to this person, Um, often on sort of sealed clay tablets then, which just survive forever. And then if they end up in a burning event in a given place, then they're baked and they survive through to this day, Uh, which brings me on to the archaeological record as well. So it's a bit of both. So you have the beginning of the written record. So this is the beginning of history. So we move on from the prehistory of Kathleen Kenyon's PPNA um, Jericho, and we now move on to Ur and the beginning of writing. So this is history. And also, though, very good archaeological excavations, often, often some of the best in the world, actually, in the 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, which begin to give us an impression of the scale and the, the size of these city-states. You know, they're, they're, they're all, they're, most of them are in modern Iraq or in Jordan or, or perhaps in eastern Syria. Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So so coming back then, we've, we've now established that we've got warfare potential and possibility due to military potential existing. When does the, the outcome of military action turn into... Um, bringing conurbations together so we get something called empire, which I know is a word that you know strikes fear now. But when do when do we have something that we could call empire? When you and look what, at go on. yeah, and, and what do we describe as first empire? Okay, great, I mean, fantastic. So um, if we look at the what we call a, a broadly uh, as as we all grew up being a, a sort of educated in history, the Mesopotamian world. So you know the Fertile Crescent, etc. You have the the Sumerian. Um, you have the Sumerian city-states, which tend to be in the sort of like the southeastern part of the First Isle Crescent, nearer to the Persian Gulf. Then later, you get the development of the Akkadian city-states, which are broadly more to the north uh, of, of Sumeria. So you're going on to the border territory between Iraq and modern Syria. And then later, you move on to something called the Third Dynasty of Ur, which is when, after the decline of the Akkadians, um, you have the Sumerian states coming back into focus again. Now, within that three-period three, three period narrative, I would argue the very first empire, when you have a military leader who is first recorded as an emperor, a conqueror of great areas of geographic territory, is Sargon of Akkad, so the principal state of Akkadia. Sargon of Akkad, around 2000 BC or maybe slightly earlier, was able to carve out an empire which it looks in the historical records certainly uh, stretched all the way from p- perhaps Bahrain, modern Bahrain, 
in the Persian Gulf, all the way through to Sumer, um, the, the Sumerian states, all the way through uh, northern Iraq, all the way through modern Syria to the Levantine coast, and maybe even incorporated Cyprus. Sounds like something Douglas Adams would have created. It's perfect, isn't it? It's absolutely perfect. It's, it's almost science fiction, but there's the beauty. This is this I is, was I want to hear their poetry. This is like Game of Thrones, but in reality, this is what, the, what you can read. You can read their poetry. That's oh the no! Beauty, Bring the, on the Vogons. Oh, that's with. another set of books she's going to buy. <laughs> the Acadian Vogons. Yeah. Uh, there is though a massive. I keep every time I say "er" uh, now, I'm, I'm not referring to the dynasty. It's just me and my speech impediment. There's a big difference between how people like the Sumerians and Akkadians in Mesopotamia wage war, isn't there? And at the same or similar time, the old and middle kingdom Egyptians. Why is there a big difference, and what are those differences? Well, that's again, that's a beautiful question. You're moving at you've got you've got the two ends of the fertile crescent, have you? And, and what we're looking at here is distance, okay? So, the city states in Sumeria originally 3000 BC, let's say, they develop in isolation from what's going off to their north apart from the trade. Then the Acadia, then the Acadians come along and they actually sort of network everything together. So, suddenly, certainly in the north of the, the fertile crest, everybody's aware of everybody and everybody's involved in the arms race. In complete isolation, you've had at the same time the development in, in Old and Middle Kingdom Egypt of a completely different military system because they are unaware broadly. In detail of what's going off um, in, in in Mesopotamia, and even, even if they were, the threats they're facing aren't symmetrical threats with other city states. The threats they're facing are um, comparatively primitive um, Nubian tribesmen to their south and to their southeast. Um, uh, the, the 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 sort of like the the, the original tribes in Canaan. Uh, in modern Gaza and in the Levant, and then to their west, the Libyan tribes as well. But compared to their own military capabilities, they're, they're relatively uh, less sophisticated. So therefore, as the military develops in the older Middle Kingdom Egyptian period, not the new and later periods, but in the early period, it tends to be more primitive just because it's dealing with things which are less of a symmetrical threat. And it's only later when they become engaged with what's happening to their north as they begin to expand through the, the Levant, that they then end up in the arms race. They get dragged into the arms race, which is happening to the north. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we talked about distance a lot there. Presumably, we are moving things around by virtue of not just walking, but I mean, we've got transport now, haven't we? Absolutely, yeah. In actual fact, the, 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 uh, you can say that sort of like horse-drawn transport, whether it's whatever kind of equity we're talking about, began with um, battle cars, which are the, the, the mounted cars I described earlier in terms of the Sumerians and Akkadians. Very primitive. It's like a, a, effectively a cart drawn by four mules with a couple of uh, warriors in the back just chucking spears from the back. Effectively, what you're doing there is you're controlling the flanks of a battle formation. This is 3000 BC to, say, 1500 BC. And, and later you get faster scouting variants, but they're, they're still horse-drawn vehicles, but they're not full-fat chariots. They come much later. 
Okay, so uh, interesting because you use the word car there, and I, I know that um, chariot is from the Latin carum. Okay, carum, carum, however you want to pronounce it, um, which literally means wagon, and much more of a wagon wagon than we think of as the two wheeled chariot with um, you know Russell Crowe, whoop, Russell um, pulling it along. So, so where did chariots come from then? Do, well, can, we, can we can we dig those up? Again, Mary, we're going back to distance. It's all about distance. Again, um, we're used in the age in which we live to think that we've got full knowledge of the world around us, etc. And we often underestimate the ability of peoples of the past to travel long distances. But this is a great example of how they could. So chariots originate in Central Asia, on the Central Asian steppe. And the first chariots that we see, the classic two-horse chariot drawn by a couple of horses, occur in uh, very, very early Scythian burials in Central Asia. And the technology gradually, because it's uh, it's um, sort of like the, the sort of like the sports car of the day, is adopted <laughs> by the various nobilities as they come into contact with it because it just looks cool, and it's practical, providing you're on an open flat plain, which you get on the Central Asian steppe, um, and it, gradually this expands down through the Caucasus and, and through uh, the Zagros Mountains. And eventually it comes into contact with a, a, a culture called the Hurrians, who sort of between 2000 and 1500 BC are the dominant culture in the, what we call today northeastern Italy. And it's from there, that's the vector of transfer, that it goes then down all the way into the Levant, through Anatolia, towards the Minoans in Crete and the Mycenaeans in Greece, goes through to um, to Iran, to the, to the Mitanni culture uh, in Iran, all the way through sort of modern Iraq and Syria, and ends up going through the Levant down to Egypt. So it becomes the dominant key form of military technology for the next thousand years. Okay. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Also becomes like epic scenes in Ben-Hur and Gladiator as well, doesn't it? I love Absolutely. It. Look, the bottom, line, the bottom line is, Alex, it looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. The bottom line is I would love to ride on a chariot. I'm, I'm, okay. still, I'm still getting over the Hurrians hurrying along yeah. with their chariot. The, hurry- <laughs> <laughs> the hurrying Hurrians. <laughs> in your new book, you mentioned the term uh, Marianu frequently. Yeah. Yep. What does that mean? Well, we're going back to the, the the sports cars of the day because effectively, the occasionally you get a piece of military technology which is so powerful and so all encompassing it changes society in general. And this is a great example of it. Actually, the onset of the classic, in this case, initially a two horse, two wheel chariot, sort of a very nippy, like a nippy sports car, with a with a with a warrior on the back and a driver. 
and the warrior's got a bow or the warrior's got a javelin and the driver's driving it. And what, 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 what you tend to find is around sort of 1800 BC, a new class in society emerges throughout much of the, the Levant. So we're talking about all the way from the Mediterranean coast through to modern Iran down to Mesopotamia and back. And they're called, they're, they're generally called in the written his, record, the Marianu, the Marianu, I call them the Marianu or Marianu, I call them the Marianu. And, and basically it's a new class of nobility who are totally associated with these sports cars. And, and intriguingly, some of the cultures then evolved. So the warrior on the back isn't then the Marianu, the noble, the warrior on the back actually is just a, a, a an ordinary line of battle troop. The Marianu t- then ends up being the driver. So, you know, the warrior, the noble, the guy with the sports car, the lady with the sports car, they're the ones who want to be driving the sports car. So that, that is the Marianu. And that domi- literally dominates for about 500 years warfare in the region and very much the foot troops or the secondary troops at the back. A lot of the fighting is done by these nobles trying to kill each other. It's all about the bling. It's all about who can show off. Thus it ever was. So, spot on. Spot on. So, Mariano, that's that's something I'd, I'd never heard the word before. Tell us about Minoans and Mycenaeans. So, the Mino- so, so it's very topical because today I'm doing the final proofread of ancient Greeks at war, which I start around 2000 BC with, with the Minoans. So, the Minoans are the first culture that people reference as being Greek. In actual fact, they're not. <laughs> they actually don't speak Greek. They probably speak a language that's based on something uh, from North Africa. And indeed, they have very strong links with uh, the North Africa and Egypt. But they're broadly thought of as being part of the Egyptian world. I'm uh, sorry, the, the, the Greek world. And, and that's because the vector of transfer of the military technology, which we first see with them, is from through Greece from the Near East, through Anatolia, through Greece, um, into Crete. And it tends to be, again, these dense formations of spearmen, later called phalanxes, uh, and also chariots. So they emerge around this time with fully formed chariots. They don't go through the battle car stage. They start off with the Mariano-style chariots. In their case, they adopt it into their own form of fighting very cleverly because their main battle formation are spearmen, not that dissimilar to Sumerian phalanxes or spearmen, actually long two-handed spears, big uh, tower shield so they equip their mariano chariots uh with um the, the warrior not with a bow or with a javelin but with a long spear in actual fact which is interesting sort of a, a local 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 vector of change uh, and then you find that they dominate the eastern mediterranean in terms of maritime activity because they're a maritime culture everyone's heard of Knossos and the minotaur etc uh, they, they they dominate conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean through to around 1600 BC, where they themselves are subsumed by the expansion of their Greek equivalent to the Mycenaeans. Think of Agamemnon, etc. And, and then dramatically, the whole thing collapses in something called the Late Bronze Age collapse, which brings in a dark age. This is what brings in the, the, the dark, dark age of Greece before the arrival of classical Greece, so sort of around 550 BC. Uh, and the late Bronze Age collapse looks very, very, it's really topical, actually, because it looks as though the cause was probably climate change. No. So you have very intricate, long-range trading networks in the eastern Mediterranean based on the maritime trade from Crete, from Cyprus, from Greece, from the Ionian coast of Anatolia, from the southern coast of Anatolia and down the Levant, all trading in this really effective um, wealth-creating system, which disappears overnight. And Does this associate- mean that the sea peoples you've mentioned in your notes are basically Kevin Costner in Waterworld? 
the, the, the sea peoples, actually, you know what? Brilliant. I love that, Alex. They're, 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 they're Kevin Costner and Waterworld, which, by the way, I uniquely remember all my friends actually think it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> you are unique in that perspective, I can yeah. assure you. Because I, I, I love it. They're, 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 they're basically the Vikings of their age. So you end up with these very sophisticated city-states in, in, in Crete and in uh, Greece and down the Ionian coast. Very wealthy. Think of Mycenae, which is the, where, where the name comes from. It's really, really wealthy. With, with 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 monarchies, with with organised armies, with very organised navies, very sophisticated economic systems, which collapse because of climate change, and these people have got nowhere to go. They can't make a living where they are, so they go Viking. And what they do is they they, they become known through the Egyptian records as the Sea Peoples, and they start two or three waves of invasions from around AD uh, one thousand two hundred fifty BC, which sweep through Anatolia completely wiping out the Hittite culture there, which is very known from biblical records. And they, they, they end up invading Egypt from two fronts. They invade Egypt from the Levant to the northeast and also from uh, the west with Libyan allies. And they almost defeat Egypt and the Egyptians and some of their great pharaohs ultimately succeed. They are so impressed with the sea peoples. They hire them to be their main battle warriors. And then, this is what I think is very relevant in the world in which we live in today. I'll give you a very prescient example. One of the sea peoples tribes is called the Peleset. The Egyptians, because they want to create a barrier state to stop people coming through the Levant from the northeast, settle the Peleset in what we today call Gaza. And they become known in biblical history as the Philistines. And then later, Philistine translates into our world today as Palestine. So I can draw you a direct thread. This is what I love about history. There is the direct threat, thread from, a, from, a, from a, in this case, a climate change event around 1250 BC, which caused an armed migration across the eastern Mediterranean, which gives us modern Palestine. And so, that's, that's put the hairs on the back of my neck up, by the way. <laughs> Completely. So, so I'm going to ask a question that, that may take us forward, but it, it may bring us back again. We've been talking about BC, AD and BC, because in um, modern culture, we, we automatically revert stereotype. We talk about BC before Christ. What was the transition in the perceived? Um, so what was the perceived transition between the biblical world and the classical world. When well, did we for, start making that distinction? For, for me, what I do is I look at um, you've got a natural thread. So if you start I, this, this is I promise you it will answer your question. You've got a natural thread which runs through uh, Sargon of Akkad uh, and his Vogons, um, all the way through a variety of major Pan Levantine and Middle Eastern empires. So you can think of the Mitanni I mentioned. You can think of the Hittites to the northeast, which at one stage almost got down to the Persian Gulf. You can think of um, the Assyrians, the mighty Assyrians. Uh, you can think of the Babylonians, and, and then you can think of the Medes. And in, in the seventh century, you have a major event taking place, which gradually begins in my opinion to bring the biblical period to a close you have the babylonians and the medes from modern iran ganging up with with a new power as well as their ally who were the persians also from iran to defeat the assyrians and then you have a brief flowering of babylonian power in the region which the medes then destroy 
and they take over the region, which the Persians then destroy. And it's the Persians who we know, the Achaemenid Persians, are fighting the um, Greco-Persian wars from the sort of like 500, uh, 500 BC onwards. So that's around my transition. When you have overt conflicts between... Actually, you know what? The really honest answer is hoplites. I think the change is when you start seeing hoplites in, en masse, because that's a step change in technology, which is replacing the chariot dominated previous period. So that's between 600 and 500. For me, that's the arrival of the Persians. Uh, so specifically to answer your question directly in a very long winded way, the arrival of Cyrus, of, of Cyrus the Great, uh, the first great Persian monarch. Okay. So Sargon <laughs> to Cyrus. That's a great book, isn't it? Sargon <laughs> to Cyrus. You heard it here first. <laughs> Okay, why? Are, let's just start completely. I love throwing questions at you because you love all of them, no matter how horrible they are. Why are <laughs> early Hebrew armies so successful? Because I think they took because they were very, very, very aggressive. Actually, but bear in mind, we've got to bear in mind with the historical record we're using here. One of the most important historical rec records that we use here is the, the, the Bible, and it's obviously told from a certain perspective. But taking that into account. The, the early Hebrew armies, as they re-emerged back into Canaan um, uh, after, after uh, being uh, in, in Egypt, they were very aggressive and they often took their opponents by surprise. And um, they played to their strengths. You know, most military forces in, in, in history who are very successful know what their strengths are, know their enemies' weaknesses and play to their strengths. Certainly the early Hebrew armies did. It sounds like we can learn a lot about um, modern warfare, about modern conflict, certainly in the 20th century, by looking back at the, the strategy and development of military entities much further than perhaps we might imagine. Well, you know what, Mary, when, when, when we look at, um, when we talk about, as, as historians, one of the things we're often asked is why is history important? And the, one of the answers we always give is because you learn from your mistakes. In actual fact, we very rarely do. But we should learn from our mistakes. And at least if you learn from a few through what we do, then that's got to be a good thing. And you can see huge amounts of parallels with this, far 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 distant past in the classical world where we can learn 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 um learn learn, uh, learn from people's mistakes or the way people have dealt with things so i give you the late bronze age collapse caused by climate change that's the wiping out of an entire way of living for the majority of people in what they considered their own civilized world because they didn't adapt to climate change because they didn't recognize what was happening until too late um we can look at uh, the the development of technology military or otherwise through clashes of cultures leading to an arms race we can look at how empires rise and fall how civilizations rise and fall it's all writ there large and it's not just in the comparatively short period of history we call the classical world let's say that goes from 550 bc through to the sack of corinth and the sack of um carthage in 146 bc here i'm giving you nine thousand years you know, yeah, um, and that's, that's a huge period of time. When, when, we, when we think about learning by example, who would, be, who would be the exemplar for you? Would it be, I don't know, the Assyrians maybe? The Assyrians are the zeitgeist culture within this entire period because often uh, people talk about um, a degree of savagery in conflict or otherwise as being biblical, don't they? And that's because of the way things are de 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 portrayed in the Bible, which is often very savage. Uh, if you want to look at an exemplar of that in the way that they are perceived through the historical record, but also the way they record themselves through their own rec written record and through epigraphy and sculpture, it's the Assyrians, who, who, who uh, were very brutal in the way they fought war. Basically, they, they had a name. Uh, 
They knew how to dominate the battle space. They fought war in and they did so. And they almost always won. And if they didn't, they were very Roman. They had grit. They came back. If there's an individual I, what I could give you as the ultimate exemplar, it's the, the, the Henry VIII, <laughs> the Henry VIII of the day, Asher Banapal, who was the... the not the Tudors. <laughs> the there's a reason. There's a reason why I use it as an analogy. Actually, it's because uh, he would have considered himself a Renaissance prince in his day, but to my our mind, in the same way with Henry VIII, he clearly wasn't. Oh, um, so, 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 so Ashurbanipal. He was. He was. He was the 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 the, the very late Neo Assyrian. Um, king emperor who was the feature of the british museum exhibition a few years ago who who you know one of the things he was famous for in his own world was trying to collect at least one example of every written text ever written and build a library in nineveh for it on the one one hand but on the other hand i love you i'm glad you said that because on the other hand um if you crossed him the following happened so he, he was the younger brother of his father the previous king but his father realised that Ashurbanipal was the real deal and his elder brother wasn't. So his elder brother was passed over. Keep him quiet, he was made the, 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 the governor of Babylon, one of the key provinces, if not the key province, within the Assyrian Empire. And at some stage within two years of his father's death and Ashurbanipal becoming the king, obviously what happens, his brother rebels. And what do the Assyrians do to people who rebel? It's not very nice, is it? So they go, exactly, exactly. So he spends two years investing Babylon. Ashurbanipal. His brother dies at some stage in the process, but they <laughs> doesn't give any, carries on investing Babylon. And eventually the Babylonian nobility come out and they say, look, we're really sorry. <laughs> we didn't mean it. Um, can we be all friends again? He says, absolutely. Let's all be friends. What I'd like to do first though, all of the nobility, all the rich people in Babylon, I'd like to pop over to the, the royal burial grounds, you know, where all your forebears are buried. And, and when you're over there, what I'd like you to do is to gather the bones of your forefathers and what we're going to do, we're going to go on a little trek. We'll all go together um, to Nineveh, my capital. And when he took them to Nineveh with the bones of their forefathers, he took them into the main arena in Nineveh. This is probably about 3,000 of the senior people living in Babylon. And he made them grind the bones of their forefathers to dust. Oh, so in a very physical way, he's wiping out the fact that their lineages had ever existed. And then, he, and then he had them flayed alive in the sun. Um, and then uh, those who survived that process were killed on stakes. So, so if you cross the Assyrians, it really genuinely was biblical, right? Merin actually is still like, yeah, but the books. <laughs> <laughs> All the books. Yeah. To heck with the flaying alive, I was stuck with the books. Well, we know... <laughs> Well, actually, they, they, we go full circle there because we know about them doing this because of because, their books and their written rec- record. Yeah, because so of their were, written records. Yeah, quite, all comes back to the books, baby. They're, they're quite, quite proud of it. And that's very important, of course, because what they're doing in doing this is sending a message to anybody else. If you cross me, this is what happens. If you go to the British Museum, there are some amazing panels which were, 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 um, were uh, found their way to the British Museum in the 19th century and 20th century from the region, from places like Nineveh and other major cities sort of in the region. And there you can see the, the Assyrians themselves in the way they portray themselves, proudly telling the world, if you cross us, this is what's going to happen to you. We will end you. They End, end you and end destroy you, everything ever you existed. ever You yeah. never existed. You, you just didn't exist. Eliminate you from the memory of your children and your children's children. Very like the um, Romans, you know. That's, that's an analogy with the Romans with the Morio Damnatio as well. It's very like the Romans. Although since since lockdown and everything, I kind of empathise with that level of rage. But 
when is this book out? You said it's out, well, we're recording on the 12th. This will go out quite soon. Uh, tell us about this book and uh, what it's called, and we will put it in our bookshop. Absolutely, so people oh, buy it. Oh, you're, you're, you're so kind. Thank you so much for your support. It's out actually in three days. <laughs> <gasps> Congratulations with your book, baby. Yeah, Old Testament Warriors through Casemate. <laughs> Looking forward to putting it on my bookshelf, Simon. Thanks ever so much. I really, really enjoyed that. It was a joy to write the book, but also even more of a joy to talk with you guys. I really love it. Thank you. Oh, you're smooth. Come back anytime. We love chatting with you. Oh. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 